Welcome to another Abiding Thought. Uh, today I want to take up a rather serious subject, uh, an issue of God dealing with us and our continuing sin. Uh, we make a strong emphasis on the fact that as believers, God credits to us the righteousness of Christ. And therefore, as believers, all of our sins, past, present, and future, are atoned for by the blood of Christ. However, we know that we struggle with sin, and God continuously brings us under conviction through the ordinary ministry of the word, through other believers. He brings us under conviction for our sins so that there is continual repentance. As a matter of fact, the reformers used to say that repentance is the life of the believer, that we are continuing, continuing to repent. In fact, we should say that repentance, which means a change of mind and therefore a change of direction because of that change of mind is twofold. On the one hand, we repent unto salvation as a one-time thing. We turn away from our sinful nature and we look to the righteousness of Christ presented in the gospel and we turn to him and that's a one-time thing. However, there is ongoing repentance as a part of our growth in grace so that we are conformed to the righteousness of Christ in our sanctification. As such, even though the ultimate penalty for our sins has been atoned for by the blood of Christ, God continuously brings, upon, brings it to bear upon our thinking, our continuing struggle with sin. So therefore, we confront sin through the ministry of the word, through others that God puts in our lives, and sometimes because we we still wrestle with our sinful nature. We are resistant to those things. So we see, in, for instance, in Matthew 18, the whole process by which a, a person who has professed faith in Christ continues in sin. They are confronted for the purpose of bringing them to repentance. Now, in dealing with our sins, and sometimes people are more ready to repent of certain things than others, and some individuals are more long-lasting in their struggle with sin. So I want to begin with the statement that we read in Hebrews chapter 12, and we'll begin in verse 4, where he says, In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when, when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which, you have, in, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it, sir, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. But for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. 
So let me make three overarching observations concerning God's chastening or disciplining those that belong to him who are members, obviously, of the covenant community. Uh, so here's the statement. God does allow, uh, because we have talked about assurance, and sometimes in our struggle with sin, we also will struggle with our assurance. And so therefore, God does allow us to be allow our assurance at times to be shaken to uh, and, and, and allows it to be disturbed for three reasons. One, so that we would turn from our sin, whatever particular sin it is, so that we would be uncomfortable in our sinful situation. Secondly, he allows us discomfort in our assurance to prove the genuineness of our faith. And then thirdly, he allows us to be uncomfortable and he allows us to be unsettled as it relates to some parts of our assurance so that we could be nurtured uh, or so that we can nurture a deeper and genuine affection for his means of grace. Now, having said all of that, I want to use as an example uh, David, King David. And we know that Psalms 51 is his psalm of penitence. Uh, when he has been confronted by the prophet Nathan concerning his sin with Bathsheba. And there are a number of things that we want to look at uh, concerning David's response, four in particular, uh, in Psalms 51, and our focus is going to be verses 7 through 17. I won't read all of the verses, but I would encourage you to read the entire 51st Psalm. But the first thing I want to call attention to is in verse 7 of Psalms 51. And David says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And in that instance, what David has, is doing is he's describing himself in the same language that's ascribed to, um, or that's, that's, uh, that, that corresponds to the deal, dealing with leprosy. And leprosy, even though it was a physical condition, it was a physical condition, physical condition with deep spiritual implications uh, because a person who was leprous was considered to be unclean. Now, sometimes people were born into a state of leprosy, and sometimes it was a result of God chastening them. But in any event, we do see in the Levitical order uh, things that were supposed to take place when a person was leprous and they were supposed to be brought to the priest. And so we see what um, the cleansing rites for leprosy. And I'm going to read from uh, Leviticus chapter 14, and we'll begin in verse 7. And it says, and he shall sprinkle it. Well, in fact, I'll back up to verse uh, 6. He shall take the live bird with the cedar wood and the scarlet yarn and the hyssop and dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. And he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed of the leprous disease. And he shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird go into the open field. And he who is to be cleansed shall wash his clothes and shave off all his hair and bathe himself in water and he shall be clean. And after that, he may come into the camp, but live outside his tent for seven days. And um, I read a little further than I intended, but the point being, 
the use of hyssop and the purging of hyssop was in conjunction. It was used for a number of things. Hyssop was used to sp uh, sprinkle the blood over the doorposts on the on the night that the children of Israel, uh, the night of the initial Passover when they were released from Egyptian bondage. But the interesting thing to note here is that David, even though that may be the point of reference, the blood over the doorposts, more than likely what he's doing is seeing himself spiritually as a leper. And that's the conviction that he did not initially have. We know that what he did with Bathsheba, he knew it was wrong. He was he knew it was wrong. He even knew it was wrong in that he covered he tried to cover it up. But now that he has been confronted by the prophet, he is he's really brought under a heavy sense of guilt. And so he sees himself almost as a spiritually as a leper. And his plea to God is that he would purge him with hyssop, even as the leper is cleansed of, of his leprosy. So David describes his condition in terms of leprosy because he's brought under deep conviction of the gravity of his sin. The second thing that we see is that David expresses a genuine dread that because of what he has done, that God would withdraw his presence from him. And we see this especially in verse 11 of Psalms 51. Cast me not from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. That is conviction, knowing how, how dreadful his condition is or his act was. In other words, he sees himself not, he, he sees himself as deserve, not deserving of the presence of God. And that's what God does. He makes us uncomfortable with our sin so that we see our unworthiness. And seeing our unworthiness we, we implore him for his mercy. Now, God doesn't leave us, but David understands that, there is, that, that God would be completely justified in withdrawing himself from him. The third thing that we see in, uh, is that David expresses anguish at being void of the joy of the Lord. That same thing in verse 11. Uh, not only does he plead that he would not take his presence from him, but he also pleads for the joy of the Lord. Um, cast not, uh, cast me not away from your presence, uh, and, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. And then in verse twelve, restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Uh, one of the things that happens when we get complacent and comfortable in sin is that we also become comfortable with secondary joy. And it's really empty, especially those who really who belong to the Lord. And we find all sorts of things to give us artificial assurance that we're okay. But when God strips us down and we see uh, what we are, as David sees himself now as in a, in a leprous, spiritually leprous uh, condition, and he understands that there is no reason that the Lord should look upon him, he recognizes that the things that he should take joy in is what he has neglected in defense of his sin. And now that his sin has, laid, has been laid bare, he pleads with the Lord to restore to him the joy of his, his salvation. Uh, the idea, of course, is that the more we are, uh, John Piper said this, and I think it's a wonderful statement, 
God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And when we are satisfied in him, then we close the doors and the opportunities for us to find joy or comfort in those things that are displeasing to the Lord. And so David, in his season of rebellion and his season of resistance to the will of God, going against what he knew to be right and what he knew to be good, found temporary joy. But now that his, his sin has been stripped bare, and he is before the Lord, he realizes that his ultimate joy is in the Lord. And something being comfortable with that which is displeasing to the Lord has compromised his sense of God's, of, of, of the joy of the Lord. And so he pleads with the Lord to restore to him the joy of his salvation. The fourth thing, or uh, the third thing, I should say, is, or fourth, fourth and final thing, is in verses 16 and 17, David recognizes the need for genuine, heartfelt contrition. Uh, Paul deals with this also in, in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians when he talks about genuine contrition for sin. But here in Psalms 51, verses 16 and 17, David says this. He says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or, or I would give it, you will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken heart and a contrite heart, O God. O God, you will not despise. So David recognizes the need for genuine contrition. In other words, here's what he's saying, is that throughout this whole ordeal, it's not that he had ceased to go to, uh, to temple worship, and it's not that he had ceased to offer sacrifices, but he realized that as long as his joy was in those things that were contrary to the law of God, in essence, he was going through the motions and not realizing the gravity of what it means to come into the presence of God renewed because of the sacrifices that have been offered, recognizing that, yes, we are sinners, and through all of the rituals, what God is doing is showing externally the things that makes us acceptable to him. And sometimes we can go through the motion and we offer praise and we can even offer prayers to the Lord, but we're saying the right things and doing the right things. The whole point of these physical rituals was to reach the level of the heart, to see that what God has required is to show us what he has given, what he has done on our behalf and to show us the gravity, or as Paul says in Romans, the sinfulness of sin. And as we, offer the, as we offer these sacrifices, the blood sacrifices, especially in the Levitical system, the blood sacrifices was to engender in the people of God a sense of gratitude that the blood of an animal has been shed instead of their own. And sometimes even when we go before the Lord we know we don't offer animal sacrifices. Even when we receive of the Lord's table, we can sometimes just go through the motion of these things and not, not have a heart that corresponds to the gesture or to the, the, the symbol itself. And so when we come to the table, for instance, here's what Jesus is telling us. This is my body that was broken and given for you. 
And this is my blood, which was shed on your behalf. This is God's covenant promise to you. And what that should engender in the people of God is a sense of awe and a sense of contrition that we would not be comfortable in those things for which the body of Christ had to be broken for us and for which the blood of Christ had to be shed. And so a contrite spirit is one that is not comfortable and that is not complacent in being in resistance and rebellion to the will of, uh, to the, the law of God. And so what David shows us here is that to some degree, his assurance has been shaken because the Lord has disciplined him through the words of the prophet and through his own inner struggles. He is, he comes to recognize that his sin, whatever prompted it was not a good thing and it was not a healthy thing and it didn't bring him the satisfaction that he enjoyed in the moment. And so the Lord bring, makes him uncomfortable because that's how God disciplines his people. The discipline of the Lord and the chastening of the Lord is not always in an external or in, in an official authoritative capacity. When the church has to move to the point of removing the privileges of the table, removing the right hand of fellowship, that's the final action. But God continuously chastens and disciplines his people. We don't want to try to make one-to-one -one correlations that if you're struggling with this, then this is because God is chastening you. God allows us to examine ourselves in light of his law and in light of his grace so that we would see our sin as it surely and truly is. He doesn't always bring us before the church, but he does bring us before the elements of his grace so that we would be uncomfortable in sin and more and more desire what he has given us in Christ, not only atonement for our sins, but he's given us the privilege of being children, children of his who are cleansed. We are those that John says who have no sin. And the reason we have no sin is because it's covered in the blood of the Son and, the, and our Savior. And as the more we realize our sins are covered, then we are able to look at our own sins. And as Paul says in Colossians, we are able to put to death the deeds of the flesh because we are children of God saved by his grace. God does chasten. God does discipline. And he does this in a temporal sense to remind us of what we have been saved from ultimately. And what we have been saved from ultimately is the wrath of God. Paul's language to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians as it relates to the Lord's Supper, he says, when we are judged, we are being chastened of the Lord so that we will not experience the final and ultimate judgment that will come when Jesus returns. Bless you.